Welcome to the Hopkins Press Podcast. I'm Mary Alice Yeski with the Hopkins Press Journals Division. Our guest today is Dr. Z. Nicolazzo. Dr. Nicolazzo is an Associate Professor of Trans Studies and Education at the University of Arizona, which resides on the unceded homelands of the Tohono O'odham and Pasca Yaqui peoples. Dr. Nicolazzo's paper, Ghost Stories from the Academy, A Trans-Feminine Reckoning, speaks to her experience as a trans woman in academia. The paper was published in the winter 2021 issue of the Review of Higher Education. Thank you so much for joining us, Dr. Nicolazzo. I'm so grateful for your time today. Yeah, pleasure to be here. Thanks for the invitation. The first question I like to ask all of our guests is, what is your academic origin story? Yeah, this is such a good question and and one that probably elicits a lot of really interesting responses from interviewees, I bet. my, my origin story really starts with my late mother, um, who always nurtured my writing as a child. Um, she was an English major herself in college, and I remember reading and writing endlessly as a child, as well as her talking with me about writing, both about the mechanics and stylistics. Um, my love of writing and reading ultimately was rooted in a desire to seek and search, to explore. Uh, this, I think, is what guided much of my scholarly life as well as my personal life, um, which is to say I kept wanting more from gender and more from gender, not just for myself, but for other trans women, girls, and femmes. And research, writing, and teaching were the mode through which I could make sense of doing that desire work. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. What a great story. And and as a daughter of an English major also, I, I, yeah. I, I high-five you on that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, One of the things that immediately struck me about your paper is that it both does and does not follow the standard conventions of a traditional academic scholarly paper. From the first sentence of the abstract, you sort of call it out and discuss the process itself, describing how abstracts are often overlooked. You note that, uh, quote, method sections are an act of containment. And in the endnotes, you say that the endnotes create a shadow text in which writing can hide in plain sight, which was delightful to read in and of itself, like an Easter egg. Um, Where did the inspiration for that kind of self-referencing scholarly writing come from for you? Yeah, so um, the endnotes portion is certainly not of my own creation. Um, I'm really deeply indebted to Audrey Thompson, who wrote um, an article called Tiffany, Friend of People of Color, um, as well as Catherine McKittrick, whose gorgeous new book, Dear Science and, and Other Stories, really paved the way for me to think about how I could play with endnotes and use them as this shadow text. Um, So both of these texts play with endnotes and footnotes and and really gave me that impetus to think about how to handle the quotidian scenes of violence that I was addressing in the manuscript. They demand presence through absence, I think, which is how they operate for trans women in the academy. And so endnotes really were the perfect place for them to to exist. Um, It it also allows people who are reading to think about how, when, and if to dip into the endnotes, as well as why they may not want to do so if they resist. Um, In this sense, the endnotes become a confrontation with gender on multiple registers for readers, regardless of if they partake in the challenge. The, the abstract, I think, was a challenge I wanted to make to readers and reviewers right up front. 
I think I felt compelled to find various places to drop challenging Easter eggs, as you mentioned, <laughs> uh, through the manuscript. Um, and the abstract and the method sections became two of those sites alongside of um, the endnotes. Um, the, the conclusion too, I think was another one of those spaces. And, and I guess I just needed to spill out the enduring investments in transmisogyny in multiple ways and places of this manuscript. And, and to, to think about um, like the re refusal to treat certain sections as um, I quote unquote ought to through mm. scholarly articulation um, was, was one of the ways that, that I kind of wanted to do that and was trying to do that. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. It, well, like I said, it was it was a delight. I kept sort of stopping and say, "Wait, wait, what did she say?" And like backing yeah. up and rereading it. So thank yeah. you for that. It really made it an yeah. enjoyable and um, and enter entertaining in the best kind of way. Read. Thanks. The paper contains several narrative passages that speak to your direct experience as a trans woman. Were these narratives written with the idea of the paper submission in mind, or did the paper grow organically from writing down these narratives? I'll, I'll start this answer off by, um, in, in what may seem kind of like a roundabout way, but I'll definitely get to answering the question. And, and, and I want to start by saying that I recently had a dear friend who left the University of Arizona. Um, she was a sparkling trans woman who left because despite having a trans studies initiative at the University of Arizona, under which me and her were hired, we still don't have healthcare um, that works for many of the embodied desires and needs that we have. Mm -hmm. Before coming to Tucson too, I was largely in worlds and communities with few to no trans women, girls and femmes, which in some ways foreclosed how I could come to love myself as a trans woman. All to say my relationship with this friend of mine, Ava was and remains incredibly dear to me. I share about this relationship because much of what I wrote about here started as conversations with Ava. Mm. Um, I gesture to some of this at the end of the piece, but we would often walk and talk. Our conversations bloomed in multiple ways, um, going in all sorts of directions. Um, I remember her one time asking me on one of our walks what I desired from gender. And I have this real palpable sense of that moment. I can remember where I was. Um, and, and each time that I walk in that particular spot now, I think of her and, and I think of how hard it felt for me to not know an answer to that question at the time. Um, the question really stopped me. Um, and, and so I think a lot about that moment and what that stoppage meant. Um, you know, I'd, I'd been so out of consistent community with other trans women that I, I hadn't been encouraged to want to seek and to hold space for the effective realities of, of those wants. Um, and, and at the time, as we were walking and processing our lives, sharing ourselves with each other, um, we, were, we were both going up for promotion with tenure. Um, and we were absolutely terrified of that process. Um, even when people told us that we had nothing to worry about, we knew that the Academy loved to hate us. Um, the, the last two weeks, especially before I learned that I had been promoted, were really some of the worst of my academic career. Um, I couldn't sleep. I felt isolated and hyper-focused on. Um, I was, at the time, perhaps one of the first openly trans women in my field to get a tenure-track job and then go up for promotion with tenure. Um, and I, um, I was sure 
absolutely sure in the last couple of weeks that I would not receive tenure. Um, the more Ava and I talked, the more I was clear that I needed to write about the specific manifestations of trans misogyny in the academy. And I needed to disarticulate the generalized notion of trans oppression, which I've written about in my first book and much of my earlier work, to really focus on what was happening to, for, around, and against trans women specifically. So it's not to say that my earlier work wasn't good or precise, but it, it helped me get to the work that I'm doing now and the conversations that I was having with Ava, which she then encouraged me to write about. Um, so it's really from that encouragement um, that that's kind of the genesis of this piece and, and really from those walks. Um, yeah, so, so I guess all to say, not originally intended to be a manuscript, really just started from, um, yeah, deep sisterly connection and really trying to make sense of the various different ways that um, we as two trans women and I think trans women broadly in the academy are, um, are contained um, for, yeah, all intents and purposes. Thank you. Yeah. We should all be so lucky to have an Ava in our life that asks yes. those kinds of yeah. questions. Absolutely. Yeah. You note the review of higher education's own overview of itself when questioning what it would mean to write for a journal that, quote, reproduces by way of our absence the sense that trans women are impossible of generating knowledge, end quote. Was it your intention always to submit your paper to the review of higher education? You know, when we started talking about this interview and, and you said, oh, I'll, I'll send over a list of questions. I somehow knew that this was going to be one of the questions. I was anticipating it. Yeah. Excellent, um, excellent. It's rare that so, you, you get the, the call out of the, of the journal within the paper. So I, again, I, yeah. what I have to ask. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, in a word, no. Um, okay. I... I originally submitted it to Women in Performance, um, which was another suggestion from Ava. Um, I had wanted to make a particular contribution to a women's studies space, um, especially as someone who I often feel like kind of an odd fit in higher education studies. Um, and so I was thinking about a contribution in a different scholarly arena. And I really wanted to point to some of the ruptures and how we understand the categories woman and gender in academic discourses. Um, it took a while to get feedback from reviewers um, from women in performance. And, you know, it, you know COVID-19 has done such a number on people's lives. So it's, um, it's no shade to the journal or reviewers. Um, it really is a wonderful scholarly base, um, but it just, yeah, it took a long time to get feedback. And, and when I did, I, I just didn't see a way forward with, with the piece in that journal. I had I'd been writing this piece for such a long time too. Um, the, the, the stories that I was unearthing and the things that I was thinking through, really it was a, a multi-year process for me. Um, and, and I almost dropped it after, after my experiences with women in performance, um, assuming that it would just never see the light of day. Um, and so I took a, a break from the piece um, and I talked with some of my dearest friends and colleagues, including Ava, and then finally decided to give it one more try with one more journal and to go toward one of the journals of record for higher education studies, which is the review of higher education. Um, when I made this decision, I knew that I needed to edit the piece toward the journal, uh, which is when I inserted that line that you referred to in your question. Um, I knew, again, that I needed to refuse the notion 
publication, publishing a piece, if it made it through the review process, then meant everything would be good and happy and that transmisogyny would somehow quote unquote, have been solved. Mm. We know that it's not and that it cannot be, um, unless, of course, we're willing to do away with the project of the university. But I, I think that that's probably a different piece and a different conversation altogether. <laughs> we don't have enough time for that one. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> um, kind of a stylistic question, which uh, came up um, while I was reading. Can you explain your use of the arrow symbols uh, in the text every time you use the word epistemic? and also uh, the strike through that you use uh, several times over the word being. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so the arrows between epistemic and ontological are, are used to signal how the ways one comes to know, which includes how some come to unknow and how some come to willfully refuse knowing. Um, the, the epistemic um, has direct relationality to how one comes to be, which, also includes how some are made to not be and how some could never be in the first place. Mm. This then ushers in the use of the strike through of the word being and exist, which is, to, which is a move some scholars in black studies often use. Um, it's, it's not that we do not exist, um, which we could just write that way. Um, instead, it's a violent erasure, a striking through of possibility a willful denial of our always already ongoing presence as trans women, girls, and femmes that marks the site of the academy and the project of the university. Um, it implicates the site, so the site upon which education continues to be structured, um, and in that way then the strike through operates as a visual sighting of how violence marks the body, the being, and existence of trans women. Um, you know, and, and, and as I think about this particular question, I, I hope that you'll indulge me a little bit here, but I, I think the strike through can be seen in our social sphere too. Um, so specifically, I'm thinking about the order um, Texas Governor Greg Abbott just made yesterday mandating state agencies to investigate trans-related care as a form of child abuse mm -hmm. and how he's engaging the citizenry of Texas to police other people, similar to the anti-abortion bill that Texas recently passed as well. Also, the don't say gay bill that's moving forward in the Florida House operates through a similar logic too. Um, in essence, these actions are moves of eradication, of annihilating possibilities for life and of a denial of our ongoing existence. They are indeed anti-queer and anti-trans. And also I would argue that based on how misogyny and sexism operate socially, they are at their core anti-trans woman and anti-trans girl. It's the fear, hatred, and violent denial of trans girl and womanhood in which these policies geared towards social death operate. I hate that we have these real world examples, truly, and, and yet hopefully this helps listeners understand the strike through on a palpable level um, as, as both stylistic and also gesturing to what's happening in real time in the moment, um, as much as academic publishing can be in real time. So. Thank you. And thank you for that. And thank you for bringing up both of those things that have just happened in the last couple of weeks. Um, because I think, and I think that I, I don't want to speak for all readers, but I think typically folks that read academic papers, you know, you tend, it, it's a land of hypothetical and pondering and thinking about things and to, and to just sort of to ground it so literally as you just did um, is really powerful and very important. So again, thank you for all of that.
I want to bring up a particular section of your paper that examines gender anxiety, how non-trans people encounter anxiety over, quote, getting it right when the it is a person, not a concept. Particularly, I was struck by this sentence, quote, perhaps this anxiety then acts as a form of exercising previous and future transgressions as a way to rid oneself of the guilt and shame associated with not getting it right, with the it here being both gender and me, end quote. I want to tell you that this sentence really stopped me in my tracks and it sat with me for a couple of days. So this isn't really a question, but more of an expression of gratitude. I just want to thank you for offering up so much of your personal experience in this paper and writing in a way that really truly kind of cracked my worldview open quite a bit. Yeah, thank you for, for sharing that. It's, um, you know, this, this paper, especially I, I, I wrote, I wrote it over such a long period of time. And then I moved away from it a little bit because I think to, to rest with some of the realities that I was writing about is just really hard to do. And mm -hmm. as I, as I was reviewing the piece to kind of come back into this conversation, I think that, um, yeah, the, these moments continue to kind of do work on me and through me. And so I, I'm, I'm appreciative to kind of sit with you and, and think about the, um, the resonances across experiences and, and across people. So thanks for, for sharing that. Um, you know, I'll also say that um, Lisa Matsai, um, to whom I, I owe a deep debt of gratitude for how her work pushes my thinking, once wrote about data that bruises readers. Um, she used this phrase bruising. Um, and, and she wrote about data that stays with readers long after they put papers down. Um, I, I was thinking about that when writing this piece and, and really wondering if that, if, if this could be a piece that bruised readers um, and, and readers of all genders, um, although the bruises would likely look and feel different, but also perhaps they may have some similar contours and nuances too. Um, I've, I've also been put in and, and continue to be put in so many situations where I am the stand-in for gender, mm -hmm. where I am the modifier through which non-trans people want to become clean. Um, and, and so, you know, I, I was trying to think about all these things and, and wonder like, how can I put this in written form not as a way to have people think, oh, you know, woe is her or poor trans women, but really to, to understand the affective refuse that we have to sift through in, in, everyday, in everyday life. Um, and, and quite frankly, you know, it's, it's a lot to hold. Um, and, and while I've gotten better at my refusals, um, the ongoing nature of, of what this anxiety does can, can be a bit crushing at times. Um, so, yeah, I'm. I'm glad to. I'm glad to hear at least that that was felt across people, and and hope that that can, yeah, animate folks within and beyond the academy to really think about their own investments in in gender in some new ways. Bruising is such a perfect uh, analogy. I had a conversation with a friend of mine uh, last week about the naming of pronouns as performative, like in an email signature or on your Zoom profile. 
and how it can come across as virtue signaling by the non-queer community. And we were talking about the kind of curious juxtaposition that at the same time that right now the world seems to be waking up just a little to the gender binary as a social construct, at the same time that all of this is happening, now we're also all of a sudden encouraging people to label themselves with pronouns that confine them and that that act of naming puts boundaries on it and how that's kind of the whole point that that it can and does change and that one word can't contain a person's identity nor should it. So I was curious what your thoughts were on this. How do you feel about pronouns in general? And do you feel that sort of the sort of increased normalcy of naming them is, is a good thing? Yeah, I'm, I'm so, I'm always so glad to hear people are having these conversations, especially as they seem quote unquote dangerous and that they chafe against the ways technologies of whiteness tempt us to want to project goodness into the world. Um, I've, I've written a book chapter about pronouns in this very context with Chase Catalano and Katie Jekyll, um, a chapter that was in Peter Magolda, Marsha Baxter Magolda, and Rosanna Carducci's book, Contested Issues and Troubled Times. Um, ultimately, I think pronouns are necessary yet insufficient for doing the work we may want them to do. So that is to say they are important and necessary and help us name how how we want to be named, who we are, and, and how we want to show up in the world. And yet, I know that even when I share my pronouns, I will be undone as a woman in multiple ways, both verbally by being misgendered, as well as epistemologically and ontologically, and how they strike through my very being in front of them, um, them being other people, on Zoom, or in the classroom, or at the podium, or having authored the text that people are reading. The sharing of pronouns then does not register a particular doing in its own right. So we may want to ask and think together then about why pronouns are important. We may wanna think about how stating our name and pronouns with no pause as if they are an extension of our names like an honorific may not do the gender justice we desire, which is similar to the conversation that sounds like you were having with your, your friend. I wonder then what could be possible if we made literal space when sharing pronouns, if we paused and realized the way pronouns as an extension of gender have been used by people through technologies of whiteness to actually harm trans women, girls and femmes, especially black trans women and trans women of color. What would our pronoun practice look like then as being a place where we wish to hold the unholdable, the unruly, and the excessive nature of gender race for trans women, girls, and femmes. But this is hard to do, especially if one is just trying to get through pronouns and introductions to move on to the next agenda item, which again brings me back to the stricken through text. Even as some people move on, we remain present, even if by absence. So I guess all to say, yes, I think they're necessary for many of us and could be an important place to pause, perhaps should be an important place to pause. But I'm largely unconvinced if that pause happens, um, if trans women are given the time to be thought of and considered beyond their being stricken through. And again, I think that this is a moment to really briefly go back um, to what's happening in Texas and Florida 
and what's happened previously in my home state of Arizona and will likely proliferate in various states given the recent moves in Texas and Florida. Tourmaline, a Black trans woman artist and archivist, has talked about the uncomfortable juxtaposition of visibility and anti-trans violence. That is, while we may be becoming more visible for non-trans people and audiences, that visibility comes with deep vulnerability in the form of threat, harm, and violence, especially for trans women of color and Black trans people in the United States. It's really hard for me. Um, I'm so glad that non-trans people are talking about what they can do to embrace and recognize the beautiful trans people who have always been in their midst. And at the very same time, the urgency of now cannot be overstated. I dream of a world in which we can both get pronouns right while also recognizing the discourses of social death that are operating and which I write about in my piece are wreaking havoc, epistemological and ontological havoc for trans people. As always, this reality requires a complex way of thinking, a both and, and, and perspective that is hard to hold but is desperately needed. We need people to recognize pronouns while also recognizing that it isn't enough in itself to stem the tide of violence, while also doing all they can, not just because it will be good for trans people, but because we need to think about cross-identitarian solidarity and movement building that, as, tr as trans critical legal scholar Dean Spade has said, focuses on those who are most vulnerable. Here, I call in the words of the Black trans woman, Cece McDonald, who has shared previously that we need to keep protecting each other because it's clear that the nation state is unwilling to do so. And we need to protect each other, not along, but across identity lines because, and here I'm thinking about Angela Davis's work as well as the Kambahi River Collective, our liberation is deeply bound up together. Um, so, so again, I mean, I think, it's kind of a long way of saying like, yes, absolutely, we need to be talking about pronouns, but we need, I think we need to be talking about it in a way that makes literal space in conversations, pauses and openings to recognize what pronouns are doing, why we're using them, and also what they cannot do and what they cannot hold, epistemologically and ontologically, and how that exercise isn't actually just an exercise, but it has material effects for what's going on through state legislatures and what's happening then if we think about the, the, the ways that visibility and violence operate, particularly for trans women of color in the United States. Mm -hmm. And this was what, what, you know, my friend and I were getting at, which was just, you know, I think for so many people, it's like, like look, I put it in my, my email file. So I'm, I'm good. It's like a black box on Instagram. It's just like, nope, that doesn't check off any boxes. And that's about you. That's not about what's happening in the world. So thank you for that. That's really important to remember. And I really like, yes, and, 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 and. So thank you for that as well. Yeah, I'm, um. I'm, I'm, I'm constantly like working with students and, and colleagues and myself too about that both and, and, and I think we're so used to um, thinking through either or, right? Like mm -hmm. either, either we take this strategy or we take that strategy. Mm -hmm. and, and I think that some of that is born from a desire to find a way to fix or to solve. Mm -hmm. um, but, but, you know, I mean, I think one of the things that that I'm trying to articulate through my piece, I'm not sure if it 
if I was successful in doing it, but um, some of this is unsolvable. It's endemic to the world that we're in. And if, if, if that's a reality, if we think about the endemic nature of transmisogyny, then what I really want to think about is, um, you know, Leanne Simpson in her latest book, As We Have Always Done, really talks about a turning inward toward each other and, and thinking about how we build community and, and through community can, can seek healing and can seek um, the types of love and worlds that we not only want in the future, but need in the present too. Um, so yeah, it's, I'm, I'm trying to really, hopefully I was able to do some of that in the piece. I'm not really sure that I was, I was super articulate, but um, yeah, these kinds of conversations I think are, are really important to, to get us to a different present tense. So. Mm-hmm. And having, and having all those truths be true at the same time, again, is, is a something that well, personally, you know, I, I'm working on, I think everyone needs to work on, but as, as a reader of academic text, you know, you're just, you're kind of used to the, like, here's my argument, here's seven points, I've proven my argument, here we go. And you just sort of brought so much, both ands and ands, and yes, and this can be terrible, but also here's a little bit of hope. And so I just, I think you did, the answer to your question is, I think you did, I, I read your paper, sort of um, hopeful and, 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 um, thoughtful and I don't know I, I it wasn't it was all of the things at once it was it was heartbreaking and inspiring at the same time and I really again I just I I, I don't uh I don't come across papers like that that I have to put down and sort of shake off a little bit at the end and, and I mean that in a good way not shake it off I don't want to think about it but like whoa because I was kind of like I felt my my physicality yeah. the physicality of reading it I had to sort of lower my shoulders and take a breath so thank you yeah yeah, thanks. I appreciate. It. I mean, many many academics don't really hear much about what their work does in the world for for individuals. So I appreciate, yeah, hearing how you're how you're understanding it and how it's, yeah, seeping into your body, which I think is part of what I was hoping to do. So yeah, and and you know, and I'm reading it in a different way from someone who is you know, seeking out something that's helping them with whatever they're researching, you know, someone who's already kind of in that mode and and thinking about the the topics that you're bringing up may read it differently, whereas to read it um, just as a standalone and not in, my, in in the sense of my own research or my own project or what am, what am I going to get out of this to use for something else, but to just read it and take it in um, as a standalone piece, which, which I'm really hoping our listeners will do after, after hearing this, um, was really quite powerful. Um, and I, I'm grateful that we're able to um, open it up so that folks that can click through on the link will be able to read this without any gating or subscription as, as this podcast gets posted. With the acknowledgement that it is not your responsibility to educate non-trans people on the trans experience, I wanted to ask if there's any further reading outside of the works that you cite in your paper that you'd recommend for those seeking a greater understanding of the experience of trans people in general or in academia specifically. Yeah, absolutely. So I know that I cite this piece in in the article, but Ava Hayward's three and a half page essay, Don't Exist, which was published in TSQ, Transgender Studies Quarterly, is so important for folks to read, rest with, and talk with each other about. Um, You know, I often tell people this, but um, usually as academics, and I'm, I'm certainly guilty of this in the past, I've always said, ugh, like, these 9,000 
these 9,000 word limits are so hard and I just have so many things I want to put in these articles, especially qualitative researchers. You know, we have quotes and all these other things we want to do. After reading Ava's piece, it's three and a half pages. Like I said, I will never complain about word limits ever again. But the work that she does in three and a half pages is remarkable and a reminder that we can do so much in, in such small spaces. Um, so really encourage people to to read that um, and to rest with it and really think about it. Um, I'd also recommend any of Tourmaline's talks, films, interviews, and artistic creations. Um, Jules Gill-Peterson too has been doing some important work focused on trans women and girls as of late. Um, and I think Nietzsche Cardenas's work is beautiful um, and lush in terms of dreaming and, and desiring otherwise and elsewheres for trans people, especially through virtual platforms. Mm. She's doing some really interesting thinking about um, AI and gaming platforms mm -hmm. for trans people. Mm -hmm. um, I also think one of my colleagues at the University of Arizona, Moira, Moira Ozias, is doing some of the more careful thinking regarding trans womanhood from a non-trans perspective. Um, Moira and I just published a piece called She, Her, Hers, Pronouns, Possession, and White Women's Consumption of Gender in the so Social and Health Sciences Journal um, that will likely be something she and we keep building from. Um, so I would really encourage folks to, to take a peek at that piece too. That sounds great. And that actually leads me right to my next question, which is what um, what are you currently working on? What's next for you? Yeah, so I have a couple of fun projects that are um, nearing conclusion and also um, a, a little bit of a new adventure. So I'm glad to, to kind of talk a little bit about this. Um, I have um, two books coming out. Um, so one is a forthcoming co-edited book with my dear friend and colleague, Amanda Tacchini. Um, the book is called Weaving and Otherwise in Relations Methodological Practice, and it will be coming out from Stylus Publishing this summer. Um, so if folks are so inclined to encourage their libraries to order it, there's a pre-order link on the, the Stylus website. Um, I have also um, co-authored a book with a dear colleague and friend, um, Alden Jones, and a fantastic doctoral candidate I have the pleasure of advising and learning from at the University of Arizona, Cy Sims. Uh, the book is titled Digital Me, Trans Students Exploring Future Possible Selves Online, uh, which is coming out at the end of the calendar year from Rutgers University Press, and focuses on, as the title suggests, trans life online. The book cover is also a very special one um, for this book because it's artwork done and given to me by Ava Hayward, my sister, who is now teaching in Holland that I've talked about a couple of times through our interview and um, who shows up um, in, in the piece in the review of higher ed. Um, so it's nice to kind of have that continuity across, across work. Um, in terms of future work, um, well, and, and I guess I should say, I think I think a pre-order link will be up sometime for Rutgers with the book if folks are interested. Um, and also, if you just want to go and, and check out the book cover to see the, the kind of haunting image that Ava has created, I think it's really beautiful. So um, in terms of future work, um, I'm actually moving toward work focused on grief and loss, um, which links back, I think, to my first answer for this interview. Um, in that much of this has been animated by the recent loss of my dear mother who passed in the fall of 2021 of mouth, throat, and stomach cancer. 
Um, gender certainly will always be present in my work. It's always there, um, as I talk about in the RHE piece, um, and the theorizing of affect that I did in the piece as well that we've been discussing will really be at the core of my work that I plan to keep on doing. Um, but it's just a little bit of a shift in focus to think about um, the unmetabolizability of, of grief and loss and um, what what grief and loss do and, and how they operate in, in education. Um, and so I've actually been um, invited by um, Dr. Penny Pasquay, one of the, the editors of the Review of Higher Ed, um, to, to give a talk. She um, operates um, the Qual Labs Institute at The Ohio State University. Um, she's invited me to give a talk on grief work through qualitative research. Um, and that talk will be on April 14th, um, I think if I'm remembering my time zones correctly, it's um, noon to one Eastern Standard Time and is open to people. It's a, a virtual talk. And so um, if folks wanted to join and, and be in community to hear a little bit about the, the beginnings of, of some of this thinking for me, um, would be very happy for, for listeners to join in and, and share. So. Absolutely. We'll put the links to both that talk coming up in April, as well as the books, any pre-order links that are available now for the books that you mentioned that are coming up. We'll put all that in the show description so folks can click right through. Um, thank you so much. This has been such a thought-provoking and important conversation, Dr. Nicolazzo. I just want to say thank you for your time. Thank you for your research. Thank you for sharing your, your experience and, and giving me and I hope the rest of our listeners a lot to think about and sit with. Um, I, again, I just, I really appreciate your, um, your paper. It, um, I, like I said, it, I, I wasn't the same an hour later having read it. So thank you. Yeah. Thank you very much. It's um, yeah. Wonderful to be able to spend some time and, and talk through the work as well always think about what, what resonances that work has on a um, personal level and a, and a social level too, as I think about what's happening and, and what will continue to happen in the broader, you know, political environment of, of the country. So thanks. This podcast is a production of Hopkins Press. For more information, please visit press.jhu.edu.